Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Krista Getting Us Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, May 30th, 2020. Right now it is Wednesday morning, May 27th, and once again we have Truthvids here with us to help us present to help us make another presentation of addressing Charles Weissman's What About the Seed Line Doctrine. This is part 16 of the series, and it's subtitled The Blessed and the Cursed, a distinction which Charles Weissman um, consistently obfuscated, consistently refused to make, and, and depending on how you want to look at it, he actually went out of his way to create many, many lies in order to obscure the truth. Truthvids, hello. Thank you for being here. Praise Yahweh. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, last week we briefly touched on, you know, the whole concept that you gain inheritance, good or bad, and that can be blessings or curses, that your existence is largely based on the deeds of your ancestors. It's just the fact of life. Weissman doesn't seem to like that. Like even today, um, you know, if, if all the things we have that you can have a hot shower, food, uh, access to an education, if you fall over outside and hurt yourself, an ambulance will come. All, all these things, we didn't make them, our ancestors did. And, you know, with the good also comes the bad. And Cain did kill Abel and Cain was a bastard. So all his descendants are bastards. And one day they will have to answer for the blood of Abel and all the prophets. And as we keep saying, Weissman really doesn't like that. He fights too for now to try and get around that. But we keep exposing him. Right, Bill? Well, well right. Even in, the, even in the epistle to the Hebrews, Paul demonstrates that ancient belief that's always been with us, that, that you suffer the sins of the fathers or you um, can enjoy the blessings of the fathers. And if you don't sin, those blessings are sustained. Whereas if you go off into sin, you're, you're trampling the blessings that you have. That the, and and you, you related that to modern society, and most people don't even see that that our race had been the, the vehicle through which the modern society was created, and it was created for our benefit. When you build a farmhouse and you clear land for a farm, you're not doing it just for yourself. It takes years to do that. You're doing it for yourself and your posterity, your children, and leaving it, you intend to leave it to them that's their inheritance. So if they let it be overrun by Mexicans, then all of your work is for naught. It, it's just that simple. We build these things. Our race builds these things. The other races don't build these things. They never have. Okay, that, that's, a, that, that's a digression, but that's the way these blessings and curses actually work. These blessings of obedience, these curses of disobedience, that the, um, the, the circumstances of Cain's birth, his actions, which by the tree, by the fruit, the tree is known, his actions, which proved that he could never be accepted, 
right after God told him that if he did well, that he would be accepted. But if he didn't do well, it's because sin lieth at the door because he came into the world in sinful circumstances. So he can't possibly do well. Yahweh God knew that he couldn't do well, and he went right out and killed his brother. And that's the way it's that that's the way it's laid out. That's the way it's, it's explained to us in the book of Genesis, because that's the lesson that we're expected to get from it. It's that simple. And people refuse to see it. People that hate the truth refuse to see the truth. They refuse to see it. It 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 um it causes them too much pain, too much anguish. They're comfortable in their lives, or the truth just isn't amenable to them. Weissman saying that if if you cut off the tip of my little finger, that then I won't be a Jew, or however it, it was placed, that I'm just paraphrasing it, proves that the truth is not amenable to him because he's a bastard. That's just the way it is. If you love God, you love the truth, period. If you can't love the truth, then you don't have God. Okay, in, in, our, um, in our last presentation in the series, which was subtitled The Blood of Abel, we left off where Charles Weissman discussed the episode in Matthew chapter 23, where Christ had told his adversaries that their race would be held accountable for the blood of all the prophets from Abel to Zechariah, which, discounting the interpolation in verse 35, we believe refers to the father of John the Baptist, but that's not really important to the, um, the interpretation of the words of Christ. We do not believe that it referred to the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, as Christ had laid direct blame for the murder of this Zacharias on his adversaries, not merely on their ancestors, where he said, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. Here we will continue that discussion of Cain and those who are responsible for the death of Abel and the prophets, as we are not finished with the portion of this fourth chapter of Weissman's book, which concerns that subject. I'm going to repeat myself a lot, right? And, and things that I said, I'm trying to summarize things that I said last week, but in a different way, because I believe that these, that these points of understanding are important, that they're critical, and, and I really want to, um, to, to get them across as completely as I possibly can. Speaking of Abel, Abel in Hebrews chapter 11, Paul of Tarsus had written, by faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it, he being dead, yet still speaks. We've already discussed at length the sacrifices of Cain and Abel, and provided scriptures supporting the plausibility of our argument that the only reason Cain's sacrifice was rejected is that Yahweh would not acknowledge Cain himself. Cain not even having been eligible to make such a sacrifice. But the only reason that Abel's sacrifice was better lies in the mere fact that Abel was even making a sacrifice. 
by which he had asserted that he was indeed the eligible son. Doing this, we explained that in the Epistle of Jude, where the apostle refers to Enoch as seventh from Adam, either Cain or Abel, but not both, must be counted in order for Jude to be correct. And the only appropriate choice is to imagine that Jude was counting Abel as Seth was a replacement for him and not for Cain. Then in the second epistle of Peter, where the apostle refers to Noah as the eighth preacher of righteousness, and every translation, every mainstream translation screws that up. But it says very plainly in the Greek that Noah was the eighth preacher of righteousness. According to the original Greek, we see what office it was that Abel had laid claim to by his act of sacrificing, for which Cain could not be accepted. Yahweh challenged Cain to do good, and he immediately went and killed his brother, thereby proving that he was never eligible for that office as sin lieth at the door, indicating that he was indeed a bastard. Then in Hebrews chapter 12, speaking of Christ and beckoning his fellow Hebrews to come to Christ, Paul wrote, But you are come unto Mount Sion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. In other words, you're, you're, if you have the spirit of God in you, you're a just man, and you're made perfect in the trials, that the sins, the repentance that you go through in this life, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Here, what did Paul mean by church of the firstborn? Now, it may be argued that since Christ was, quote-unquote, firstborn among many brethren, then Paul is referring to his church. However, since Paul is writing in relation to the history of the Old Testament as well as the New, before the birth of Christ, the phrase must transcend the New Covenant in its meaning, to include all of the covenants which Yahweh God had made with Adamic man all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And that is demonstrated where Paul compared the sacrifice of Christ to the sacrifice of Abel. So discussing those passages in Jude and in Second Peter, we explain that the eldest son was traditionally the family priest. The eldest living son of Adam, was the Melchizedek priest, the preacher of righteousness. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. The preacher of righteousness, as Peter called Noah, and that Abel was asserting that the position belonged to himself and not to Cain. So when Cain was rejected, he slew him. In other words, there are parallels between the account of Abel and the account of Christ. Christ had stood up in Jerusalem and said, no, you're not real priests. 
I'm the real priest. I'm the Messiah. I'm the real priest. And they killed him. Well, Abel asserted that he should have been sacrificing and not the perceived elder son, Cain. So Cain's sacrifice was rejected because Abel, like Christ, Abel was correct. And he was slain for it. So there's a parallel there. Cain was a spurious. His sacrifice, his assumption of the role of priest in sacrificing to God, he was spurious. He wasn't accepted. The same thing in Jerusalem. These Edomite infiltrators, these descendants of Cain, they pretended to be priests, and Paul said no. There's Satan sitting in the temple of God pretending to be God. And that's what they were doing. So they killed the true Messiah, the true God, and they went on continuing to be high priests and, and continuing to pretend. They're no different than Cain. The fact that it was written, they're no different than their father, and Christ told them that they were the children of Cain. The fact that it was written in the Psalms that the Messiah would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, being Yahweh God incarnate and the true firstborn of our Adamic race, as Paul also explained in that same epistle to the Hebrews, assures the veracity of our interpretation because it demonstrates a clear and consistent thread of thought from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through the Revelation, from beginning to end of our Bible. This Charles Weissman cannot do. In fact, Weissman is not even consistent with his own devices, with his own arguments, either from chapter to chapter or even within a single chapter or paragraph under a single subtitle. He's not consistent. We're going to discuss that right here. Where he, here where he speaks of Cain and the murder of Abel, his inconsistencies are clearly manifest. I don't know if you have any comments. So, yeah, Bill, just, um, just wanted to clarify the Melchizedek priesthood um, so my understanding is Christ or Yahweh, same thing, was the first priest. Uh, but since he hadn't come into the world yet, at least as a fleshly man, it got passed on to Adam and then firstborn to firstborn. And then what way is it? Is it because at some point it was well, well, Adam was back to Christ, the firstborn? Adam... Or was it never technically not Christ? It was always his. He just took it back when he came back into the world. You know, it was always his. Adam received the commission from God by which, as long as he preached righteousness, by which as long as he did not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would fulfill the role of Melchizedek priest and have the authority of God on earth. That was what was given to him. That was... Um, in Genesis chapter 1, where it said that he would have dominion over the entire creation. And in reality, only God has dominion over the entire creation, but he delegated that authority to Adam 
when he when when he told him to re, to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And that word dominion is a um, Hebrew word which literally means to dominate, to tread down. So, we understand from later scripture, from Revelation chapter 12, that when Adam was created, that he, that the fallen angels were already on the earth, that there were already many other people on the earth, a whole tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam was created, and Adam was basically told to have dominion over, to tread down every living thing that moves upon the earth. If Adam stayed without sin, if he didn't, the only law he was given was not to touch that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If Adam stayed without sin, he and his eldest son after him and after him and after him, he would have maintained his, his um, position for which he was created to have the authority of God to be a... Um, to have the authority of God delegated to him so that he could rule the earth. That was Adam's commission in a nutshell. So when Adam touched the tree of the, good, of, of the knowledge of good and evil, he failed. He lost that commission. And he's given the punishments that we read in Genesis chapter 3 that we still live under until this day. So when Christ came as a man, he is God and he was without sin. And he's assuming the role that Adam failed in, that he delegated to Adam where Adam failed. So he is the rightful Melchizedek priest who had delegated his authority to another man, and that man failed. But he won't. And, and that shows how it ties in with the whole Adamic race. He's the head priest of every living Adamic person. Well, well right. And Adam failed. But in Genesis chapter 3, Adam was promised a path to recovery as the cherubim had guarded the path to the tree of life. They didn't, the, the denominational churches teach people that the cherubim were set there so that Adam could not find, could not approach the tree of life. That's a lie. The cherubim were put there to guard the path, to make sure that there would always be a way for the Adamic man to return to the tree of life, to grasp it and take hold of it and live forever. So that's why the cherubim are next seen in scripture atop the Ark of the Covenant. What's there? The law is kept within the Ark and the mercy seat. So the Adamic man, through the law, and the, the mercy of God would be able to come back to the tree of life. And that is symbolized in Christ, in the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of that law and the mercy which God would have upon the Adamic man. So that, that's the significance of the entire Old Testament experience. That's the significance of the um, purpose of the Messiah. And 
the first promises were made to the entire Adamic race, while Christ also fulfilled and will keep promises made to the narrower portions of the race, Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob and his descendants, as they were, Weissman's right about that, that they were chosen to be the designated heirs of, of the Adamic race. And they represent the Adamic race in modern history because Abraham was told that he would inherit the nations. That happened, to, that was fulfilled 2,000 years ago. And it's been ongoing since, but that was fulfilled 2,000 years ago. If you look at the which tribes dominated the white world at the time of Christ, that was already fulfilled because those major tribes all came from the ancient children of Israel, the Dorian Greeks, the Romans, the, the Scythians, who were the Germanic, who were the captives of the Assyrian captivity, the Phoenicians, which became the Celts, and Britons of the of the West. So history is complicated, but that's the, those major tribes of, of the time of Christ. They all descended from Abraham. Abraham already had inherited the nations because they, those tribes, dominated the Adamic world, and and the Japhetite and the other Shemite and the Hamite tribes were marginalized by that time and remained marginalized. They've had a secondary role in history. Many of them were destroyed by the time of Christ. They were gone. They had, they had either um, battled or bred their way out of existence. Okay, now I have to remember exactly where I had left off. Where Weissman speaks of Cain and the murder of Abel, his inconsistencies are manifest. First, if Yahweh God is a righteous judge, and if he judges according to his own law, which things are certainly true, then no descendant of Seth can justly be held responsible for the blood of Abel. Only Cain and his descendants could ever be held responsible for the blood of Abel. Secondly, the you in the words whom ye slew in Matthew chapter 23, verse 35, refers to the rulers and high priests of the Judeans who oppose Christ. And it can be demonstrated in history, as we have also done here, that the preponderance of them, at least, were indeed partially descended from Cain through Canaan and Esau. Next. Since it is demonstrable that the adversaries of Christ were descended from Cain, we can see that where Christ had called the parents of his adversaries vipers, since he called them the offspring of vipers, and where he said that all these things shall come upon this generation, the word generation actually meaning race, he certainly must have been calling those who would be held responsible for these things, a race of vipers, speaking of ancestors and descendants and crimes throughout history, which were both near and remote. Finally, while the Israelites themselves could be held responsible for the deaths of the prophets, 
We see that where they were charged with that, in places such as Jeremiah chapter 2, the reason for their sin was given to the fact that they had accepted race mixing with the Canaanites, which is apparent in that same chapter and in other places, such as Ezekiel chapter 16. The ancient children of Israel were warned in the books of Moses, Joshua, and Judges that if they accepted the Canaanites, even if they didn't drive out the Canaanites, that they would be caused by them to sin. And Jeremiah chapter 2 and Ezekiel chapter 16, among others, are records of how they caused them to sin. So there's no, that there's a consistency in scripture. If Yahweh God tells you that you don't drive out these Canaanites, they're going to cause you to sin. And then there are going to be thorns in your eyes and pricks in your sides. In other words, they're going to persecute you and prevent you from seeing, which is what thorns in your eyes do. Well, that's exactly what happened when the Canaanites had been, they failed to drive them out of their cities, and Judges chapter 2 gives a list of those cities where they failed to drive them out. And those Canaanites, the individuals, ultimately coaxed the children of Israel into bow worship and blinded them with, with, with paganism and ended up persecuting them because they ended up ruling over them. That's the pattern. That's a pattern that we could see in history today. When, when, when merry old England, in the time of Henry VIII, accepted usury, and then just a couple of generations later, you see the king, his descendant, you, you see King James or, um, I'm sorry, King Charles I beheaded and Cromwell admitting the Jews into England. Well, the sin of accepting usury led right away to the admittance of the Jews into England, and the king lost his head. What the hell? How could we not see this? And then within that century, we had the founding of the Bank of England, and the Jews have been in control of the English ever since. Now, for 200 years, it was very subtle, but these last 100 years, it's right in our faces very blatant. How could we not see the pattern? It was the same damn pattern in ancient Palestine with these Israelites and the Canaanites and Edomites back then. I don't know how people can't see this. It's crystal clear. We let these people in. We accept their... their, their it's the uh, same everywhere, isn't it? We accept their sin, and all of a sudden, they're in control. <clears throat> That's why, as we explained last week, what we had the good figs, who were Judah, and then we had these evil figs, and then we had certain people of Judah, certain of the rulers who were going to be turned over to the evil figs. But the evil figs weren't Judah. No, Jeremiah never said that. They were so evil they couldn't be eaten. Yes, it's the same thing. It's the same pattern repeated in history over and over and over. And if you really carefully read these prophecies, you'll see 
that what happened in the West, in the nations of Christendom, these last 100 years, well, actually 250 years, is a repeat of what had happened in ancient Palestine and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. Um, Jeroboam I made golden calves and caused all of the children of Israel to practice paganism. Well, here we have Jews in charge of television media. And guess what? All of the children of Israel are practicing paganism. It's the same thing. It, it's just a, a, a golden screen instead of a golden calf. I could carry on with digressions forever. I'm, I'm sorry. Where we do see the prophets or priests of Yahweh being slain in the historical records of scripture, aliens such as Doug the Edomite, who was also an accuser of David, and David was a prophet, and Doug was always accusing David and, and trying to persecute him, or, or Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, were the chief instigators or the actual executioners one or the other. In, in Jezebel's case, she was a chief instigator, in, and she may have been a Danic, but she was a pagan, and she was the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians. And Ethbal was a pagan priest, and this is in, um, this is explained in Flavius Josephus's book Against Appion. And Josephus had access to a work which has been lost in, in history since Josephus wrote it. He had access to an ancient translation of the archives, the chronicles of ancient Tyre, which I would love to have, but it's missing. So Josephus had, had um, given this history of, of the relationships between the um, Sidonians, the Tyrians, and ancient Israel to a, to a in small degree because it wasn't his purpose to make a full account. He already had the Chronicles of Tyre. I don't think he could have foreseen them ending up missing, right, at, at some point. He was referring to them and using them as a, as a primary source. So Ethbal, the king of the Sidonians, was actually a pagan priest, so we don't know who he was who had slew, he killed the descendants of Hiram, the king of Tyre at the time of David and Solomon. He killed one of the descendants of Hiram and usurped the throne. And after he did that and secured his position, he evidently married his daughter off to Ahab, the king of Israel. So that's how Jezebel got to where she is. And Jezebel was a chief instigator of the destruction of the prophets in her time. And Doug the Edomite was an example of the type of individual that was present in ancient Palestine where he should not have been because he was among the herdsmen of Saul. How did an Edomite get into that position? We know how. It happens all the time, right? And he was happy to kill the priests for Saul, where the other men of Israel, the men of Israel wouldn't do it. Saul couldn't find anybody else to do it. 
So the words of Christ are literally true, and, and we can see that the descendants of Cain should be held responsible for the murder of the prophets, as only they can be held responsible for the murder of Abel. It was descendants of Cain in the ancient kingdom of Israel or kingdom of Judah that had caused the children of Israel to sin over and over again. And that's what God said would happen in the books of Numbers and Joshua and Judges. And that's what happened. And if we can't see that in our Bible, then, and, and it's very clear in the Old Testament, if you compare the books of Moses to the books of the prophets, if we can't see that in our Bible, then our Bible is worthless to us. It's worthless. But that's the story of Scripture. That's what God said would happen, and that's what happened. And Weissman refuses to see it. Therefore, our two seed line interpretation of all of these words of Christ are indeed consistent with Scripture and history. But where Charles Weissman had attempted to interpret, or more correctly, misinterpret the words of Christ in that passage in Matthew, and I'm going to um, preview a lot of the things that we had said last week. First, he said, Weissman said, the problem with this is that Jesus never said that these people or their ancestors killed Abel. He said that the blood of Abel and others was going to come upon them. In the Old Testament, it is clear that one's offspring has a share in one's blessings, but also suffer on account of one's sins. And, and this is something that I, um, I was going to bring up. It, it hit me when you had first made your comments at the beginning of this presentation this evening. And, and I went a different path instead, and I spoke about something else. But if you look in the epistle to the Hebrews, where Paul talks about Melchizedek, Paul is trying to show his fellow Hebrews that the Levitical priesthood was not the original priesthood. And it was never made to be permanent. He was telling them that the time for the Levitical priesthood was over. And it was time to return to the original priesthood, which was the Melchizedek priesthood. So Paul made an analogy about Levi, the tribe of Levi, being in the loins of Abraham when Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. And by that, Paul's trying to demonstrate the fact that the Melchizedek priesthood was superior to the Levitical, because Levi was in the loins of Abraham when Abraham made a tithe to Melchizedek. So therefore, he's demonstrating and making the assertion that Levi is subservient to Melchizedek. And therefore, this Melchizedek priesthood is the true priesthood of our race. Because Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, so Melchizedek was in a higher status, was greater than Abraham. And that's what Paul's saying, and it's true. So in the Psalms, in David, there's a prophecy in the Psalms of David that Christ would be a priest forever, not after the order of Levi, but after the order of Melchizedek. 
and that's the Messiah. So Paul's trying to explain this to his fellow Hebrews, and they didn't get it. A lot of them didn't get it, but because they clung to their their, their um, worldly paradigm and and the Levitical priesthood, they didn't get it. But that's what Paul's saying in that passage, and it's very clear. However, in the law of God, so so one's offspring has a share in one's blessings, and and one's offspring suffers on account of one's sins. However, in the law of God, if one is charged with a crime that he did not commit, the individual making the false charge would suffer the penalty. So let's think about this, right? If Christ had charged people with a crime that they weren't liable to suffer the penalties of, if they are descendants of Cain, they're liable to suffer the penalties of the crimes of their father in the ancient Hebrew custom. But if they're not descendants of Cain, they can't be held liable. That blood can't be on them because they're not children of Cain. So did Christ die without sin in order to pay the penalty for our sins? Or did Christ die because he made false charges? Weissman is basically taking the position of the Jews by claiming that Christ made these charges against people who, under the law of God, could not be held liable for these charges. Weissman, the supposed expert on the law, who wrote a book on the law, is full of it. He's a liar. He's a devil. Christ could not have been accusing the descendants of Seth. All of the children of Israel, the entire Adamic race, are descendants of Seth. He could not have been accusing the descendants of Seth of having any liability for the blood of Abel. Yet that is what Weissman insists. And he makes the insistence without offering one shred of scriptural evidence in order to support it. Next, he said, this is one of several instances in which Jesus foretold of a coming judgment upon the Israel nation. But Christ did not say anything about the Israel nation here. He was speaking to his adversaries and in reference to their parents and their race. Weissman is inferring that he was speaking of the race of Israel, but that is not necessarily true, and we would assert that Weissman's inference is wrong. So he continued and said, in fact, it was a judgment upon Adamic man of which Israel was the recognized heir and responsible party. Now, this is the, um, the nature of the adversary, right? If you read Revelation, in Revelation chapter 12, when Satan and his angels are ejected from heaven, are thrown out of heaven, it says, the accuser of our brethren is cast down. And here, Charles Weissman, blaming the entire race of Adamic man for the murder of Abel, when Cain really did it, Charles Weissman is an accuser of our brethren. That's what he's doing. He is a, a devil. A false accuser.
Yes. He, he goes completely out of his way and does everything he can to not blame Kane and to blame everything on us over and over again. Why is he protecting Kane so much? You have to ask yourself that. Well, well right. He's saying, be, and, and he says this a little, a, a couple of sentences later, he's saying that because Kane was an Adamite, that the entire Adamic race is responsible for the murder of Abel. But that's simply not true. Where was any blame ever placed in Scripture in that manner? I mean, we are punished for the sins of our ancient forefathers, those people that were disobedient to God in, in the ancient kingdom of Israel and Judah. We're punished for that, yes, but that's because our forefathers committed those sins. David had um, slain Uriah the Hittite. So... Did Solomon suffer the blame for that? No. Okay. Do any of us suffer the blame for that? Who aren't even descended from David? Well, we might be in one way or another. But none of the ancestors of David ever were, were, were the blame was never placed on any of them for David's having killed Uriah the Hittite. It's not stated anywhere in Scripture. Not that there is a curse on the house of David for his having killed Uriah the Hittite. It said the sword will always be in thy house, and his house was always divided. We see that, one against the other, right from the time of, of David himself, when his own son rebelled against him. But nobody else in Israel or Judah suffered for those sins. For all the murders which were committed in the Old Testament, other people, aside from your own family, Ne are, are never consigned blame for it. You're not, if, 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 if we're related by blood because I'm half English and I go kill somebody, you're not responsible for that. That's not your fault. You can't be blamed for that. The entire race is not blamed for the sins of David, for the murder which David committed. The entire race is not blamed for the murders which Saul committed. But Weissman is saying that the entire race is blamed for the murder which Cain committed. And that doesn't hold up in Scripture. I misspoke when I said David's descendants were never blamed. I meant to say the other Israelites were never blamed for the murder of Uriah the Hittite. Only David was. And for that reason, his house, we were told that David's house, a sword would be in his house forever. So even though his descendants, he was promised that his descendants would rule over Israel forever, at the same time, they suffered a curse, and his house would always be divided by the sword forever. So there's, there's a blessing and a curse, and his descendants had inherited both the blessing and the curse. So the words of the blessing are true, but in the meantime, they would suffer under the curse for his sin. But the rest of Israel... That sentence, of, that, that sentence for the death of Uriah the Hittite wasn't directly, that guilt was not directly imposed on them. Of course, David was their king, so they suffered on account of it anyway, but it wasn't imposed on them. They weren't held guilty of the blood. And how many murders had there been in the Old Testament that the rest of the children of Israel weren't held guilty as long as they didn't agree with the crime. When you agree with the crime, 
then that's a different story. You're going to be punished for it. When um, the children of Benjamin had defended the men of, of um, I'm trying to remember the name of the town. It's the same town that Saul came from. And, and they defended their actions and had basically defended men that were rapists and murderers who raped and, and murdered a woman in, in Israel. Well, the, that, that caused a war, and most of the tribe of Benjamin was wiped out. Gibeah. Most of the town of Benjamin was wiped out. Most of the tribe of Benjamin was wiped out on account of that war because they were defending sin. They were defending a murder. But that doesn't mean they were all guilty of the murder. It, it, if they had condemned the act, they would not have borne the guilt. They would not have borne any guilt. Defending the act, they bore the guilt. Weissman is basically defending Cain, and, and he should bear the guilt. Well, if he's really a Jew, then he certainly shall. And that's what he's doing here. He's lying to hide that truth. He's covering, he's covering the truth to vindicate himself, essentially. That's what a Jew would do. I'm sorry, I'm going through and too many And even today, um, I was Go. just going to say the Jews boast of them killing Christ, right? They're, they're, they're glad they did it. Right. At least now in society, they're able to do it, that they, uh, they're proud of it. They certainly don't condemn their race for doing it. Absolutely. And many Jews have done that. So when they boast of killing Christ, then they share the, that they're, they are admitting that they share that guilt. They're going to share the guilt anyway, but they're admitting that they share the guilt <laughs> and they're bragging about it because they don't think there is a God. And, and they don't think they're going to be held guilty, that they think all these, this Bible is a joke. They don't think they're going to be held accountable, but they will be. There's no doubt they will be. And, and the scripture tells that story, too, that in the last days, the enemies would be the head and we would be the tail and, and that they would exalt themselves and, and, and boast in, in how high they had gotten. It, it's, so their destruction is certain. Because we're told what they would do, we should know that, and they've done it, we should know that their destruction is certain. There is, without a doubt, every, that they're going to get the Holocaust that we owe them. There's no doubt. So Christ didn't say anything about the Israel nation bearing that guilt. He was talking to particular adversaries in reference to their parents and their race. And Weissman is inferring that he was speaking of the race of Israel, but that is not true. Next, he continued and he said, in fact, it was a judgment upon Adamic man of which Israel was the recognized heir and responsible party. That's Weissman's words. So he is an accuser of our brethren. He's accusing the entire race of a crime that they did not commit. This is a lie because Seth and his descendants were never and could never be held responsible for the blood of Abel. Seth wasn't even born when Abel was slain. However, Weissman then made a crafty argument by which he excluded just about everyone whom he already insisted should bear the blame. So he narrows it down in a dishonest way. And he said, however, most Israelites were now 
divorced from God and no longer under the old covenant and thus could not be judged as a responsible heir. Wow. First, as we also explained, the entire race of Adam was not held accountable for their sins where there was no law, as Paul had explained in chapter 5 of his epistle to the Romans. Yet the children of Israel, who were put off in punishment, were indeed under the judgments of the law until the death of Christ, as Paul explained in Romans chapter 7. So when Christ spoke those words, the Old Testament Israelites were all under the penalty of death in the law. The Old Testament Israelites and their descendants, because we're bound by the vows of our fathers. The Old Testament Israelites and their descendants were all under the penalty of death in the law but for reasons other than the slaying of Abel and the prophets. But that alone shows Weissman is lying. As Paul said in Galatians, Christ had come to redeem them that were under the law, which included the Galatians, who were descendants of the old covenant Israelites, but who were not Judeans. So Weissman was lying where he said that they could not be judged as a responsible heir. They were indeed being punished for their sins. But the Israelites in Judea, Weissman said, after that, he next said, but the Israelites in Judea were still under the old order. They were the last Israelites still answerable under the terms of the old covenant. If the Israelites of the captivities... All the other Old Testament Israelites who did not return to Jerusalem in 520 BC, if they were not under the terms of the Old Covenant, how were they being punished when Yahweh God said that they were being punished? So Weissman's lying. And even this we have shown to be a lie. Since Yahweh himself had pronounced the Old Covenant to be broken in Zechariah chapter 11, over 500 years before the birth of Christ, and furthermore, we explained that the Judeans of the period of the Second Temple never had any propitiation for their sins, as there was no Ark of the Covenant or Mercy Seat that the offerings of propitiation required in accordance with the law. If you can't properly make the propitiation according to the law, then how do you have propitiation? You can't. They were displaying a pretense of piety. They were going through the motions, but they could not complete an act of propitiation. So under the terms of the old covenant, they could no longer under the terms of the old covenant, they could no longer be judged and gain mercy. They needed a new covenant. They had to wait they too had to await the coming of the new covenant, the promised new covenant. It was promised in Jeremiah. It was promised in Ezekiel. And it was promised in more, more subtle ways in other places. So now, after saying those things, what he did was he put the blame for the death of Abel on the entire Adamic race. 
And then he used lies to narrow that down to only the people of Judea. Now he directly contradicts himself once again. He said the race of Adam was responsible for the death of Abel, which is a lie. Then he cunningly reduced that to Israel alone, and then further to the Judeans alone, devising other lies. But now he reverts to his first position, and he says, with, <coughs> I'm sorry, with the end of the old order and covenant and the establishment of the new covenant, Judgment needed to be rendered upon the Adamic race for that which it had done under the old order. And, and that, that's, that, that's incredible because most of the Adamic race was never under the old order. They weren't under the law. That They were um, pagans who had wandered from God as soon as the flood of Noah had, had come to an end. And they grew, the descendants of Noah grew into these, had these sons and, and grew into these nations. Christ came, as we had shown that Paul had explained in Romans chapter 5, so that the children of Israel, as well as the entire Adamic race, would not be judged and condemned for their sins, as Weissman puts it, under the old order, right? They would not be judged and condemned. That's why Christ came. But now Weissman is saying that Christ came, that the new covenant was established, so that the Adamic race would be judged for what it had done under the old order. So Weissman is nullifying the mercy and forgiveness which is found in Christ. He's erasing that in this statement. If all of the sins of the children of Israel were forgiven on the cross of Christ, as the apostles explained, and as it was promised in the prophets, and if sin was not imputed to Adam and his descendants where there was no law, as Paul also explained, then how does Weissman claim that judgment needed to be rendered upon the Adamic race for that which it had done under the old order. How does, he, how does he claim that? His claim is the exact opposite of the Christian profession. His claim nullifies the very purpose of Christ to bear all the sins of the children of Israel upon himself, as it is stated by the apostles and prophets. So Weissman is he a Jew or a Christian? It's almost like Christ coming was a bad thing. Yeah, like right. Like his reasoning is he came to condemn us rather than save us. Right. It's it, just crazy. That is crazy. Weissman, and, and at this point, like you said, Christ coming was a bad thing. Well, the, the, the Jews that wrote the Talmud also knew that Christ coming was a bad thing. So they made up a bunch of lies. At this point, we must ask, is Weissman, does he think like a Jew or like a Christian? We can only pick one. He obviously thinks like a Jew. There's no doubt. <laughs> You're right. Christ, for Charles Weissman, Christ's coming was a bad thing because he's a damn Jew. <laughs> Charles Weissman refuses to admit that Yahweh God has enemies. 
that those enemies are the same enemies from which the Adamic race and the children of Israel were promised salvation. For example, as we see in Luke chapter 1, where it says that Yahweh raised up a horn of salvation so that we in, in the house of David so that we would be saved from our enemies and the hand of all that hate us. That's the purpose of Christ. And then he transfers the statements of guilt and promises of punishment to those who were supposed to be saved. He transfers them to the children of Adam and the children of Israel who were supposed to be saved from those whom God has promised to destroy. In Weissman's view of scripture, it's not sheep and goats. It's only sheep who will all suffer the punishment of the goats. That's what he's saying. It's incredible. His, his perversion of scripture, his twisting of scripture, 180 degrees from what it should be. That's what he's doing. Anybody, it's, yeah, his, it's, his view, it's good for the goats, right? I mean, yeah. they do whatever they want and the sheep suffer. It, it's, um, it's incredible that so many identity pastors from Weissman's generation had actually accepted and believed Charles Weissman. He, he's basically a treacherous bastard. This isn't Christianity. This is Judaism. And Dave Barley accepted this. And, and, and Stephen Jones accepted this. And James Brueggemann. And Mark Downey. And, and a whole line of, of Christian identity pastors from the 1980s and 1990s to this very day still accept this. Ted Wyland still accepts this. He upholds Charles Weissman as an authority on scripture. And he's just a, a, a perverted, corrupted liar. Then, where Weissman had contradicted himself and said that the judgment needed to be rendered upon the Adamic race, he, can, he now contradicts himself again where he said, in the next sentence, this is incredible, these Judean Israelites were to bear the judgment for all of the unlawful acts of murder committed, whether or not their direct ancestors had done them. This includes the murder of Abel by Cain, because Cain was an Adamite. Wow. So which is it, Adam or Judeans? Weissman narrowed the responsible parties from Adam to Israelites and Judeans, and then to just Judeans. Then he widened it. He widened it again to Adamites, and now narrowed it again to just Judeans. So he continues to lie in his endeavor to obfuscate the truth. And all along the way, he shares not one passage of scripture which may support any of his contentions. Not one passage. Where is, where is one passage of scripture here to support what he's saying? Then he insists that Cain was an Adamite, and therefore the entire Adamic race is condemned for the actions of Cain. This is what the Jews call chutzpah, 
And Weissman is absolutely insolent in his attempt to claim that any member of the race of Adam, of which all the survivors come exclusively from Seth, is guilty of the blood of Abel. None of them are. None of them can be held accountable because they weren't in the loins of Cain. That's sort of like saying if you are a, um, an Indian Swami or, or a Taoist monk or, or an African witch doctor that you should um, worship Abraham because Levi was in the, in the loins of Abraham because you're a priest too just of another religion, but you're a priest too, so you should worship Melchizedek. You, you should be a member of the Melchizedek priesthood because Levi and the Le Levitical priests were in the loins of Abraham, so you got to be there too. On, on the other side of the coin, that's what Weissman is saying. It, it's incredible. Even if Cain were an Adamite, the descendants of Seth, who did not issue forth from Cain, could never be held responsible for the crimes of Cain. Yet Weissman purposely misread John 8.44, which we discussed, I think, three or four weeks ago, where Yahshua Christ had told his adversaries that they did come forth from Cain. He wasn't saying the devil was their father. He was saying Cain was their father. And once that is understood, then the implications in this passage in Matthew chapter 23 are clear. So Weissman purposely refused to understand it because he could not face those implications. If you interpret, if you read, I'm sorry, it's not even an interpretation. If you read John 8.44 correctly, that the adversaries of Christ were the sons of an entity who was a murderer from the beginning. So, the word Genesis means beginnings. You go back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 3, and Genesis chapter 4, and you see that Cain was the first murderer. Then Christ is calling them the descendants of Cain. And once you understand that, it's clear what he's saying in Matthew chapter 23. And Weissman purposely misread John 8, 44, so that he didn't have to put it together with Matthew chapter 23. Here in Matthew chapter 23, once again, Christ had referred to his adversaries as serpents, but to their parents as vipers. What did their parents do? Were they there when he was speaking? He's speaking to men who are well advanced in age. These men are high priests and Pharisees. They're not children. Their parents are probably all dead, or, or at least many of their parents, I'm sure, were dead. <clears throat> Caiaphas became high priest in, in the year 19, 14 years before Christ is speaking. Annas was high priest in the year 9 for 10 years, or maybe it was the year 8 AD. So his parents are almost certainly long dead and buried by the time Christ is, Christ is speaking. And these are the men he's speaking to. Annas and Caiaphas and the rest of their group of the Pharisees and Sadducees who, who were um, their closest associates and advisors. This is who he's speaking to in the temple 
in Matthew chapter 23. Calling their parents vipers, calling them serpents, he must be referring to a race of vipers and serpents. In John 8, 44, Christ told his adversaries that Cain was their father, as only Cain was a murderer from the beginning. But he also referred to Cain as a devil. The opponents of Christ understood that he was speaking in relation to the circumstances of their birth, and they denied it. However, the prophets and the histories also show it to be true. But how was Cain a devil? Cain was not a follower of the devil. Weissman insists that Cain would be a devil if he was a follower of the devil. But Cain was dejected. His countenance had fallen because he tried to make sacrifices to Yahweh, and his sacrifices were rejected. That shows that Cain was trying to be a follower of Yahweh rather than follow the devil. Weissman made insistences to the contrary, but once again he offered not one shred of scriptural evidence to support his insistences. How is Cain a devil? We can't answer that unless he was the seed of the serpent, because Cain was trying to make sacrifices to God, not to the devil. It, does, it doesn't say in Genesis chapter 4 that Cain brought a sacrifice to the devil. It says he brought a sacrifice to God of the first fruits of his labor. To us, it is evident that Genesis 4.1 is corrupt, as we have demonstrated with proofs of the problems described by both Hebrew and Greek interpreters. And Cain was indeed of the seed of the serpent, which would be at enmity with the seed of the woman as the descendants of Adam throughout history. While the children of Israel are guilty of their own sins, the descendants of Cain are the historical panderers of those sins. And that is the message in Moses and the prophets, who attributed the sins of Israel to the fact of their having accepted and mingled with the Canaanites. This is two seed line. This is the parable of the wheat and the tares. This is the parable of the sheep and the goats. This is John chapter 8. And this is Matthew chapter 23. Weissman had tried his damnedest to corrupt this truth. And the only thing which is evident in that endeavor is his own damnation. Charles Weissman needs to be condemned. And also um, with Cain, Adam and Eve tried to raise him and, you know, his nature still came out. He was still called a devil, even though he was raised by two white people. It didn't matter in the end. And as well, you said, that's a lesson for us all. Right, absolutely. But but think about this. Think about the real picture that Genesis chapter 3 is um, drawing for us. Adam and Eve are innocent. And they go off and, and they engage in this um, sexual conduct. And Eve gets pregnant and has a baby. And she says, I have gotten a man from the Lord, if she said that, because there are like, as I showed in, in comparing the passages in Origins Hexapla, that there were four or five different interpretations of that original Hebrew. Whatever the original Hebrew said was corrupted at an early time because in the time of Origin, 
by the time men were making translations into Latin and Greek, there were like five different versions of that verse in five different translations. And they couldn't decide. They couldn't um, be certain of what it said. Did Eve get a man from the Lord? Did Eve get a man who is a Lord? There are different interpretations, as we had already discussed at length earlier in this series of presentations. We've already discussed them all. So, whatever Eve got, she perceived that it did not come from Adam. <laughs> she never exclaimed that it came from Adam. If, um, if they were innocent, which they were, which is how the scripture portrays them, and they began to have sexual relations, it's very plausible that Eve and Adam themselves really weren't sure where this child came from. That's plausible. So Adam naturally raises the son as his son. And then they go on and have Abel, and then they have Seth, and Cain kills Abel, and then they have Seth. And perhaps in their lifetime, they were never really sure because they were in a state of sin. And maybe they, they, they didn't understand what Yahweh God had spoken to them. What we have is a parable that Moses was written by Moses in 1450 B.C., 1450 B.C. Now, perhaps Moses is drawing off older traditions, but Moses is inspired by God to write these things. He's told to write these things. And they're written in the form of a parable in 1450 B.C., 4,000 years after the fact. At least 4,000 years after the fact. And this parable is written in a way to relate to us to relate to subsequent generations um, a lesson about something that happened in early history. And the way it's written, it portrays Adam and Eve as having been innocent and having gotten this child that Eve thought came from a lord or perhaps was some sort of lord. Because that's the terminology that we see in the hexapla in the various translations, and it's confused because they couldn't properly interpret Genesis 4.1, and that's because it was corrupted. The grammar is not right. So, and um, if the father was a fallen angel, then he would have been white, and you just look at Cain and know, like, you know, you can kind of nail with a lot of bastards. He would have probably just looked exactly like Adam and Eve. So it was the nature that truly showed itself in the end. Well, well right. I mean, we're not told that he, he had any um, real different appearance. I mean, there's all kinds of um, conjecture over the mark of Cain. But the mark of Cain was given him later in life, well after he had grown to manhood. By Hebrew tradition, you could even make a sacrifice until you were 30 years old, right? Uh, I mean, what we have to, we can't imagine that Cain and Abel were young boys making this sacrifice. They had already been keepers of sheep and, and tillers of the land. 
Abel sacrificed the sheep because that was the fruit of his labor. And Cain sacrificed from the fruits of the field because that was the fruit of his labor. So there we notice that Cain even had the vocation of his father. And, and that's always been a tradition in our race, that the eldest son, if you look at the entire ancient and medieval periods in history, the eldest son was the heir to the father's trade. He was taken and taught the father's trade, no matter what the father did, and he would eventually inherit the family business. And the second son, third son, fourth son down the line, they would be... Um, in, in a less fortunate family, they would be put off with other tradesmen as apprentices to learn their trade. And it wouldn't always be the same trade as the father. And they would learn a trade and they'd be out on their own. They wouldn't inherit the father's business because they were second, third, and fourth sons. So in a wealthy family, the second son, the third son, they often went off into the military or into the priesthood or, or, or um, if they didn't take up an apprenticeship somewhere else. And that's the way it worked. That's the way it's always worked. So Cain gets the family business. I mean, these traditions have been with our race forever. That They didn't come from nowhere. That they've just been with us. Okay. I'm, I'm, I've digressed a lot here, a lot more than I thought. So this might be a long program, but I would like to finish this. So now continuing with the lies and deceit of Charles Weissman from where we had left off on page 37 of his book, What About the Seedline Doctrine? He claims God is merciful. However, and offered these Judeans a way to become a part of the new covenant without harsh judgment brought upon them. So now here, Weissman is totally full of shit. He, I, I mean, Christ is telling us that this judgment is going to come upon a particular race. And Weissman's even weaseling out of that. He says they were given a choice, repent or perish. And he's referring to Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. And he says, these verses foretell of judgment on the fig tree, which represented Israel. For those who did not repent, judgment came by way of death at the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, or by way of a curse on the survivors. The fig tree Jesus cursed and he refers to Matthew chapter 21, verse 19, which was actually a separate incident, was symbolic of the fate of most of these people. Christ knew the hearts of these people and knew most would not repent and accept him. As he said to them, how can you escape the damnation of hell? And actually, Christ did know. Christ did know their hearts because they were Edomites and not Israelites. But here, Weissman is lying because he is taking promises of mercy out of context and applying them to parties which were not promised mercy. In Matthew chapter 23, where Christ spoke about accountability for the blood of Abel, 
he was speaking to his adversaries. He said nothing of mercy. He said that the blood for these ancient crimes would come upon them. And he said nothing of mercy. He made no promise of forgiveness. But in Luke chapter 13, where Christ said, repent or perish, he was speaking to a group of his own followers, his own disciples. The context for his words in Luke chapter 13 begins in Luke chapter 12. But to understand even that, we must first go back to Luke chapter 11. In Luke chapter 11, Christ is arguing with his adversaries, and we read, Woe unto you, for you build the sepulchres of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Truly you bear witness that you allow the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their sepulchres, sepulchres their, their graves. Therefore, their tombs. Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation, or race. That's the meaning of the word, race. From the blood of Abel under the blood of Zacharias, who perished between the altar and the temple, verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation, or race, once again, the same word. Woe unto you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge, which is what Weissman is doing. Ye entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in, you hindered. And as he said these things unto them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to urge him vehemently and to provoke him to speak of many things, lying wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. So all that happened in Luke chapter 11 when Christ spoke to his adversaries. And these words, it's an earlier time than Matthew chapter 23. These are not the same incident where Christ says very similar things in Matthew chapter 23. It's at least a year, a year and a half later, and he's in the temple in Jerusalem, where in Luke, he's not in the temple. These words were very similar to what Christ had said to his adversaries at a somewhat later time, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 23. Then, we see that Christ is speaking to a different group of people, to his followers, and not to his adversaries. In Luke chapter 12, where we read, in the meantime, when they were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that they trod one upon another, he began to say unto his disciples, first of all, so they, his disciples, are the audience for these words. Beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Immediately before that, 
at the very end of Luke chapter 11, we read that those opposed to him were laying wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. From the beginning of Luke chapter 12, the context is not broken. And the record of the discourse continues well into chapter 13, where we see the, re the warning to repent and the promise of mercy, as well as the parable of the fig tree. So the warning to repent is made to an entirely different group of people than those to whom Christ said that they would be held accountable for the blood of Abel. And that other group, his disciples, were never held, were never called serpents or vipers by Christ. Those people from, that he was addressing from Luke chapter 12, where it says that they were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, and that he said first to his disciples, and he started to talk, those people were never called serpents or vipers. They were never told that these, um, that the blood of Cain, the blood of Abel, I'm sorry, the blood of Abel for the crimes committed by Cain would come upon them. He was speaking to a totally different group. So Weissman created yet another in a long list of lies by taking words out of context, which were designed for one group and applying them to a different group. He just, Weissman is making an assertion that everything Christ said was to all of the Israelites in Judea, when that's certainly not the case. Furthermore, Weissman lied where he said the fig tree represented Israel, when at no time did Christ himself make that correlation. The fig tree of the parable in Luke chapter 13 bore no fruit. Yet Israel bore much fruit, as we read in John chapter 15. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go forth and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. And whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So Weissman ignores the fact that there was more than one type of tree in Judea, where speaking in reference to men, Christ had said in Luke chapter 6, for the good tree brings not forth corrupt fruit. Neither does a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit, for every tree is known by his own fruit. For of thorns men do not gather figs, so there's figs in Jerusalem. There were good figs in Judea. And that's what Jeremiah would tell us. And there are thorns and bramble bushes in Judea. And that's what Jeremiah tells us is going to happen. For of thorns men do not gather figs, nor of a bramble bush do they gather grapes. In Matthew chapter 21, Another, a different parable from that of Luke. Another parable of a fig tree is given, and it was cursed, never to bear fruit again. 
There it is clear that the fig tree is not Israel, but only Jerusalem. As Christ was speaking of Jerusalem, and Weissman is confusing these two fig trees. But in Luke, it's clear. Once you understand the parable in Matthew chapter 21, then it becomes clear that the parable in Luke is representative of Jerusalem, not of all of Israel. That's not true. That's Weissman's statement, but it's not true. In Matthew 21, Christ was speaking of Jerusalem, and in Matthew chapter 24, speaking of the imminent destruction of Jerusalem, because that's the context of his discourse in Matthew 24, he said in verse 32, now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer, meaning the time of harvest, is near. So likewise ye, when you see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation or race shall not pass or be eclipsed till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. So therefore, in the context of those statements in Matthew chapter 21 and Matthew chapter 24, we know that the fig tree represents Jerusalem, but so that Weissman can obfuscate the differences between the people of Christ and the enemies of Christ. He takes the words spoken to one party and claims that they apply to the other. And he takes Christ's correlation of the fig tree to Jerusalem, and he claims that it applies to all Israel. He is a liar and the father of many lies. How is Weissman not a devil? How is he not a false accuser? Blaming the murder of Abel on the entire Adamic race, he certainly is an accuser of our brethren. He certainly is fulfilling the role played throughout history by the devil and his angels. And then, as you pointed out, he acts as if the coming of Christ was a bad thing for the Adamic race instead of a good thing. And and it's interesting, um, Bramble, that's like ivy, isn't it? It grows up uh, around trees and strangles it. It yes. lives off the trees, you know, growing too, tall and strong, and it lives off of that to get high, feeds off the tree and kills the tree eventually. It, it's exactly like you-know-who in our societies. Exactly. Yeah, right. It, it, it starts out a little plant at the base of the tree, and all of a sudden, in a year or two, the entire tree is consumed, covered and consumed. Just what's happening to... um. America, Britain, Australia today. <laughs> it's incredible that the the um the pictures that that Christ drew in all of his words and all of his parables, but also in the parables of the Old Testament, like the parable of the trees in the forest, the trees of the forest in in the book of Judges, where in Judges chapter nine. The trees are all noble fruit trees that have their own tasks assigned to them in life, and they want to fulfill those tasks 
so they don't want to um, depart to rule over the other trees. They'd rather do what they were created for. But then the bramble volunteers to be king, and he ends up destroying them all. That's what happens. Because the bramble doesn't have an occupation of his own if it doesn't if it's not related to ruling over the other trees. The bramble doesn't produce anything worthwhile. In Matthew chapter I'm sorry, we already discussed that. Now Weissman returns his attention to Matthew chapter 23, and he returns his attention to Matthew chapter 23 and responsibility for the blood of Abel. And he says, Jesus did not say these Judeans were responsible for the death of Abel, but rather they will be made responsible. Now, where is that in the law? How could you be made responsible for something that you or your fathers did not do? One example, please, in scripture, just one. If there was an example, Weissman would have given it, but he didn't. It's just something he's making up. Weissman continues and he says, however, he did say as a national racial entity, they were responsible for the blood of Zacharias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. And he misspelled altar. Zacharias was stoned in the temple by the people of Judah, who were Israelites. And he's pointing to a Zechariah who was stoned in um, 2 Chronicles chapter 24. Thus, these people Jesus spoke to had to be their descendants. Jesus further identifies who these people are when he said to them, Wherefore, you be witnesses to yourselves that you are the children of them which killed the prophets. So, out of one side of his mouth, Weissman insists that the Israelite Judeans, in spite of the fact that they did not descend from Cain, will be made responsible for the blood of Cain, even though they were not responsible, even though that is not what Christ had said. And then, out of the other side of his mouth, he says that they were responsible as a national racial entity for the blood of Zechariah, that they had to be descendants of the people who killed Zechariah, but they didn't have to be descendants of Cain. That's double talk. Why would it be important for them to have been the descendants of those who killed Zechariah, but not important to have been the descendants of Cain? Weissman never explains. He only insists and offers no scripture supporting his insistence. All of his arguments are mere cunning and emotional sophistry. None of them are supported by scripture. It is unlikely, first, that the Zechariah of Matthew chapter 23-35 is the Zechariah of 2 Chronicles chapter 24 as he was the son of Jehoiada the priest. And if we accept what is probably an interpolation in Matthew, what I certainly believe is an interpolation, that Zechariah was not the son of Barachias. But even if that is possible, it really doesn't matter. However, Weissman 
did not even mention the alternatives. Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, came over a hundred years later than Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada. Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, he wasn't even really a prophet. He was the high priest, even though a priest can, can um, assume the role of prophet, right? But he wasn't really um, a prophet in that sense. The priests and the prophets of the Old Testament were often distinguished. And, of course, often the two roles overlapped. But that's immaterial. Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, was not anywhere as close to being the last of the prophets. Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, was over 100 years later. But more significantly, however, there was another reason why Christ was not putting responsibility for the murder of the prophets upon the true people of Judah. But to understand this, we must first read from 2 Chronicles chapter 24. And the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the high priest, or Jehoiada, probably, the high priest, which stood above the people and said unto them, Thus saith God, Why transgress ye the commandments of Yahweh, that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken Yahweh, he has also forsaken you. And they conspired against him and stoned him with stones at the commandment of the king in the court of the house of Yahweh. Thus Joash the king remembered not the kindness which Jehoiada, Jehoiada his father had done to him, but slew his son, this Zechariah. And when he died, he said, Yahweh, look upon it and require it. It says earlier in that chapter, And Joash did that which was right in the sight of Yahweh all the days of Jehoiada the priest. But after the death of Jehoiada, Joash fell to wicked influences. And for that, he was punished, having been slain by his own servants. This was the reason for the warning of Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, against Joash. But if the race of Joash was to be held accountable for the murder of the prophets, then Christ is condemning himself and all of his own relatives. As Joash is one of the kings of Israel in the line from which, in part, Christ had descended. However, only Joash, however, only Joash was basically responsible, was accepting responsibility for the murder of Zechariah, as it is recorded that he said with his own mouth, and when he died, he said, Yahweh look upon it and require it. Christ is not saying that his own race shall be held responsible for the blood of the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. Neither is Christ saying that they will only be made responsible for the blood of Abel, which is something that is contrary to his own law. Once again, he is saying that the race, the descendants of Cain are responsible, as only Cain can be responsible for the blood of Abel, 
and it is ultimately his descendants who caused Israel to sin. That is verified in the books of Moses and the prophets, as we have already frequently pointed out here. But there is another dynamic to consider, which is whether parents are responsible for the sins of the children. And it is not so. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were never held responsible for the sins of the children, of their children, but rather their children were granted mercy on account of the promises Yahweh had made to them, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Christ, calling the parents of these men vipers, where he called the men themselves the offspring of vipers, is holding the entire race of his adversaries accountable, but they are certainly not of the children of Israel. Weissman wants it both ways. You can't have it both ways. Now Weissman continues with something which we have already discussed here, but we'll summarize once again. It doesn't take much Bible study. This is Weissman. To reveal that it was Israelites who killed the prophets. They were not killed by Philistines or Canaanites or Canaanites, by which he means Kenites but Israelites. The phrase, Abel to Zechariah, was used to mean all the murderers in the Old Testament and relates to all the righteous blood shed on the earth. No one can rightly say that Cain's descendants were responsible for all of these murders. This can only be a reference to Adamic man, of which Israel is the elected seed. These words of Christ are words of judgment on Adamic Israelites, as only Israelites could be judged under the law and the covenant. No mongrel or non-Israelite could, could ever have this judgment upon them. The argument that Jesus was tracing these people back to Cain is a failure to see the big picture. So Weissman's projecting on us. He denies the big picture. Charles Weissman denies the big picture while accusing two sea line adherents of a failure to see the big picture. That's almost funny if it weren't so cunning. <laughs> I don't know if you have a comment on that. Stephen the Martyr. Usual, um, what did you call it? Projection where they um, just, just blame us. You know, they... Um, like, like the Holocaust, they just make this outrageous lie and just talk normally as though, you know, there's nothing about it, as though it's just the truth. And here he just uh, says, you know, that we're silly for believing this, that uh, all the responsibility is from these this race from who have killed Abel to Zechariah. Right, exactly. And and that's a good analogy because the Holocaust is is built on a whole... Um, series of lies, lie after lie after lie, assembled into this whole myth about a holocaust of Jews in, in National Socialist Germany. And today, if you do not accept the lies, you're called a holocaust denier, and, and you're basically um, crucified because you don't accept the lies of these Jews. Even if you just passively 
without any um, anti-Semitic expression, without any um, visible antipathy towards Jews, if you merely don't believe their Holocaust lie, because it's impossible, because the numbers are impossible, then they accuse you of being a hater and anti-Semite, and, and they attack you merely for not believing their lies. But if you that this um, recent coronavirus um, pandemic, which I don't even believe is real, but it serves to expose a lot of those Jewish lies about the Holocaust because they've admitted that there were so many deaths and, and the numbers only a couple of 10,000 maybe. There were so many deaths that we can't even cremate 100 bodies a day, which is what the number of deaths would require to cremate 100 bodies a day. They're admitting that these major cities with much better technology than was available in National Socialist Germany and much more fuel. I mean, we, I mean, the price of gas went down by 50%, maybe, maybe at, at least 30% since the supposed pandemic began. The price of gasoline, petrol, as you call it over there, the price of petrol <laughs> here in America dropped considerably because the demand dropped considerably. So, with all of our modern technology, all of our abundance of natural resources, far beyond what Germany ever had, because they were constantly in, in a fuel shortage over there. They don't have oil wells in Berlin, right? So we can't destroy, we can't incinerate 100 bodies a day. But we accuse the National Socialist Germans of... Holocausting, that, that's a whole burnt offering, right? Of, of incinerating in the supposed ovens at Auschwitz and the other concentration camps, three million people in, in just a couple of years, or six million people, I'm sorry, in just a couple of years, six million people in a couple of years is many hundreds of bodies a day. It's many hundreds. They could do it, but we can't. How is that? So it, it has its uses. And we know that the Holocaust is, is a huge lie. And eventually it will be exposed. But just for, for looking at those numbers and saying, no, that's not possible. Today, the Jew would crucify you. That's exactly what he'd do. And he does over and over again. Men have been crucified, innocent men that aren't even racists, they don't hate Jews. Germar Rudolph, the chemist, and, and many men like him have been virtually crucified in the public square. They've lost their careers, they've been discredited at their own vocations, their livelihoods have been cut off, they've been cut off from their families and friends because they're anti-Semitic Holocaust deniers. So Weissman denies the big picture. And he's projecting that on us because the Jews love to project their crimes and their ideas upon their enemies. And we suffer that all the time. 
It's the Jew that's the anti-Semite. It's the Jew that's the devil. And as Paul said, it, it's the Jew who is contrary to all men and who killed Christ and the prophets. Now, there's an interpolation there. There's an interpolation in the manuscripts where it says their own prophets, but that wasn't in the original Greek of the oldest manuscripts are consistently just the prophets. So the Jew has been trying to um, put the blame for the murder of the prophets on us for a long time. Because in 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, where Paul wrote, according to the King James Version, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us and they please not God and are contrary to all men. Paul didn't say their own prophets. He just said the prophets. In all of the um, manuscripts from the 5th century and earlier, it only says the prophets, not their own prophets. So this lie, which Weissman is upholding, has actually um, has actually been devised for, for and, and and propagated for a long, long time. We've admitted that the children of Israel bear the blame for the deaths of many of the prophets, but it's connected to the fact that among them were the false priests, the Baal priests, the children of Canaan, the Canaanites, the Edomites, and that they. It is upon them that the blood of all the prophets will come, not upon the children of Israel. Charles Weissman denies the big picture while accusing two seed line adherents of failure to see the big picture. That's cunning. It's a, it's a blatant um, oversimplification of the entire story in the scriptures. Stephen the Martyr rightly puts the blame for the deaths of the prophets on the children of Israel. But the prophets themselves, as we explained in Jeremiah chapter 2, Ezekiel chapter 16, had attributed the sins in Israel, and specifically in Jerusalem, to the fact that the Canaanites had infiltrated among the people. So the Apostle Jude wrote in his short epistle, For there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. No Israelite was of old ordained to this condemnation, and no Israelite could be called certain men crept in unawares, which describes those Canaanites and Edomites who had crept in unawares in both ancient times, so you had Doug the Edomite right there to kill the priests for Saul, and at the time of Christ, where you had a whole class of high priests, Pharisees, and Sadducees who were Edomites and not Israelites. Later in his epistle, Jude relates these men who crept in unawares to the angels who left their first estate, the Nephilim, 
the fallen ones in Genesis chapter 6 who were in the earth from of old, as Jude says, who were of old ordained to condemnation. In the books of Numbers, Judges, and Joshua, the children of Israel were warned that if they did not kill all the Canaanites, who were originally worshippers of Baal, which was an, a fertility sex cult, that's what it was. That's where people first got married at the altar. That's the meaning of getting married at the altar, that in these ancient Baal cults, they had sexual acts right at the altars. And that was what getting it married at the altar really was about. The Israelites got married in their tents. That's where Isaac got married. He, he saw Rebecca. He fell in love with her. And, and he took her to his tent and he married her. And that's how they got married. Well, people that got married at an altar in ancient times were married in a temple of Baal. But they would just keep getting married every week to somebody different. They didn't stay married. They were committing adultery and fornication. Tertullian, the third century Christian apologist, defender of Christianity, had written that in the pagan temples, the people were admiring the genitals of the priests. And they were getting married that way in his time. Baal worship was a fertility sex cult. And that was the religion of the Canaanites. And they turned the Israelites to that cult. And the children of Israel were warned that if they didn't kill all the Canaanites, that the Canaanites would, be, would become thorns in their eyes and pricks in their sides. The children of Israel failed to kill them all. And the entire historical narrative of the subsequent Old Testament books relates how they did that same thing, turning their backs on Yahweh their God and following after the whims and ways of their Canaanite enemies. Yet the children of Israel were promised mercy in Christ, and Christ told those same people, descendants of Cain in his own time, that they would be held responsible for all the blood of the righteous. So it was then, and so it is today, that the Jews, the descendants of Cain, are still responsible for all the wars and the deaths of the righteous in this world. They're also responsible for the idolatry in the world, and as it's the Jews who are behind the promotion of, of, of um, gambling casinos, the, the pornography, the, the garbage, the trash coming out of Hollywood and, and in the entertainment industry, it's Jews that are behind all of that. They're still the princes of this world. They're still the promoters of idolatry and perversion, just like they were in Sodom and Gomorrah. They were the Canaanites of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were the Canaanites and... Edomites of the periods of the kingdom and the New Testament. They were always there. They are held responsible because they did descend from Cain.
They're the tares. They are the tares in the parable of the wheat and the tares. Weissman just refuses to see it. He refuses. So he makes up lie after lie after lie. Yeah. And it's just amazing how the exact same thing is happening to the, you know, our world now, or our white nations. You know, you read uh, the story of uh, the Israelites setting up their kingdom and all these Canaanites and it gradually deteriorating. And you can just look around you and see the exact same thing that um, all our nations, you know, we've probably had the longest white nations from Christ, what, 2000 years they've survived. And then as soon as the Jews were let out the pit, it just immediately within 150, 200 years, it's just completely deteriorated so fast and so quickly. It's just crazy how fast it happened. Well, well right. And and all in in cunning ways, in, in very cunning ways. That this egalitarianism, which eventually led to the freedom of the slaves and, and the declaration that niggers were people in, in America and other white lands, and, and as soon as niggers became people, the, the Jews began encouraging race mixing and, and opening the floodgates to more immigration because we're all immigrants. It, it's, it's mad. It, even in, in Europe, this mass immigration in, in the name of, um, of, of humanism and, and egalitarianism and, and, oh, these people are oppressed. They need to become like us, so let's bring them into our lands. We couldn't make them like us when we were in their lands. So how do we think we're going to make them like us when they're in our lands? It's never going to happen. But the Jew has us all convinced, generally, that that's going to happen. That these people can come into our lands in massive numbers and become just like us. <laughs> that's crazy. That's suicide. So if you look at um, white youths, white youths who were raised side by side with these beasts in the same cities, in the same schools, with Africans and, and with other aliens. What happens? Do the beasts become like white people? No. The white people become like beasts. That's exactly what happens. So we have, in America, we have the advent of the wigger, which is a white man or woman who acts just like a nigger, dresses, acts, likes the same music. You don't have very many niggers dressing and acting and, and liking the same things white people like. The opposite is happening. That's exactly what God told the children of Israel. Destroy all these Canaanites or you are going to follow them. It's the same thing. So what we're being destroyed by the same people in the same exact way that happened in the Old Testament. The names are different. The, 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 um, the vehicles for this are, are different. I mean, they didn't have FM radio back in those days. <laughs> but we don't have bow temples. Today we have churches that are really no different than bow temples, except that people usually keep their clothes on. But if, if you follow the... Um, hippie movement in California and, and the free love scene, that they tried to bring that into churches in California. 
And I'm sure it succeeded in many places. We just aren't ready for it yet, but it is coming. It is coming. We're slowly sliding down that hill. Pretty soon it'll be full-blown free love in our churches. And, and that's the end of it. That's the end objective of our enemies, just like they had in ancient Yeah, there'll times. be a tipping point won't there? when there's enough of them, or not enough whites who care anymore, that it will just get worse and worse, where there'll be bestiality, pedophilia, you know, all horrific things that you'd never think you'd ever see in society, but it all comes from them. Right, I posted a video recently of a... Um... I think it was a Church of Christ. I don't remember exactly what denomination it was. I'm sorry. But it was a church in San Antonio, Texas. And it, it's all sort of um, normal-looking white people, some of them old, some of them children, right? It's a typical white church in San Antonio, Texas. And everybody in the room is apparently white, right? The pastor's white. And... This guy gets up and, and he has an opportunity to say something at the altar and he gets up at the podium of the priest or, or the, I'm sorry, the pastor. He gets up to the podium and what he says is he, he makes a soliloquy, a soliloquy to his male lover and proposes marriage to him. And the male lover comes up on the altar, and this is 2016, I think. The male lover comes up to the altar, and they make out right at the altar. And everybody in this church, they should be outraged. They should be lynching this faggot bastard. That's what they should be doing if they were real, Christian, real Christians. Instead, they're clapping and smiling, and they're loving it. They're eating it up. And, and that's the state of Christian churches today. They've been turned into Baal temples in everything but name. It's like that everywhere. Well, yeah, the um, nobody respects the law anymore. It's just, you know, follow your heart. And as long as you're not, you know, quote unquote, harming anyone, you can do whatever you want. It, that's just how people view the world now. Well, I, I tried to explain in a podcast a few weeks ago that where John says that God is love, that they're drilled, that that has become like a factoid that's drilled into their heads every week in their churches. God is love. God is love. But God also hates. And that's not taught in the churches. So they believe God is love. So they, that they think that love is God. And they've come to worship love instead of God. And love to them is has no boundaries, and, and so there's no racial boundaries, and now there's no sexual boundaries, and pretty soon, men are going to be walking up to get married with donkeys and and horses. <laughs> there's no doubt. Was it um, Venus, the god of love? <laughs> yes. Yeah, and and I made that correlation, and, and it's true. That's exactly what's happening. They worship love instead of God. And, and then they mistake lust for love. What, when the Greeks actually had um, several different words for love. And, and, and the Apostle John wasn't saying that God was erotic love. Okay. 
I hope this all made sense, and and I hope it's a I don't know. It's it's. I try to um, address this a little differently every week. It's it's sort of hard, but Weissman, I'm trying to demonstrate so that the evidence is irrefutable that Weissman simply lies and lies and lies again and again and again. That every point he, every argument he has against two C line depends on lies, is premised on lies. And that's true. And I hope to be that we are demonstrating that as we go along. And we should do it in a manner that's irrefutable. And I think we're doing that. I mean, I can't be a judge of my own, of my own assertions. <laughs> and my own, my, my own construction of the evidence. I, I, I mean, others are going to have to judge that. Yeah, absolutely. But I think it's becoming clearer and clearer that the lies come more and more forth. You know, the saying that you build um, lies on a stack of cards and then it just gets worse and worse because the lies have to be keep coming, you know, getting worse and worse to try and twist it all the time. Well, this will leave us off, I think, at the top, <coughs> at the top to the middle of page 38 of Weissman's book, that there's still three and a half pages left, I think, in this chapter, 39, 44, three and a half pages left in this chapter. So we might be at it for another week or two, at least, or three, until we finish this chapter. <laughs> so it, it has, I think it has to be done. I mean, <laughs> it might be getting tedious at, at yeah. part 16, and, and we might have 24 parts to this. And I don't know. I mean, I can't tell the future. I'm not a prophet. Thank you for being here, and and thank you for assisting yeah, no with this, and 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 contributing some of your perspectives are great, and I appreciate it. No problem, Bill. Thanks for having me. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, not of, not the God of all these evil Canaanites infiltrating our world. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. Praise Yahweh. Good night.